So uh, here we are, as I was joking earlier, live to tape in Paris. I don't know what part of Paris we're in. I don't know. A fancy part? You have some sort of undead sculptures guarding your hotel. I do. I do. It keeps the spirits away. How would you describe those? Uh, you don't want to see them in the middle of the night, I guess. You know, you, they, they would haunt your dreams. Uh-huh. You know, maybe they'd be parts of your nightmare. I'm it, not sure. They look like they're unraveling. You, well, one of the things that, that I, I realized on whatever day we got here, the mat, the placemat changes out front. So, Oh, you mean the mat? The, yes, yes, the mat. And where the undead eat? Where the undead eat. <laughs> it, it tells you whether it's raining or not because, like, one mat ah. will say rain and one mat doesn't. So apparently that's what you use for checking the weather is you just huh. walk out of your hotel and if it says rain, then you should probably go grab your umbrella. Or your right. Umbrella. It's one of those things where you're shaving off seconds to optimize. Exactly. Right, right exactly. before you hit the actual outside, right, right. there's your place mat. But see, then as a software guy, my thought goes to, well, how do they decide when to put out the rain mat and when not to? Mm. You know, I mean, what's the percentage? You know, what, what does the weather guy have to tell them right. to where they're comfortable yet put out the rain mat versus and then no? They could have an internet of mats. With, Maybe. With, it's, it's on the internet. And yeah, it wouldn't it be changes. nice that you just swap them out? Yes. You know, and I don't know how frequently they swap them out either. I mean, well, you should ask. I'm sure they'd be ha- go to the concierge. Believe me, we could go dial, say, dial at zero or whatever, and they'd answer have, all sorts of questions. I have a lot of questions about your match. And the undead that guard the <laughs> hotel entrance. <laughs> exactly. Did you notice the Apple Store is literally like right next to us here? No. We're in the same building. I'll do Apple some store. Apple Store we'll tours. To the Apple Store. Yeah. Well, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, that'd be a good idea. Hi, my name is Nate Shuda. I'm, I'm an architect advocate kind of guy here at Pivotal and do all sorts of random things in the cloud space and architecture space. So so we've been in several uh, sessions, uh, including today, where, where you talked about like 12-factor uh, development and things like that. And, I, and, and I, I've listened to your talk a few times and I still have questions. Good. Not, good. not, not because of your lack of... Hang on, wait, it. wait. Maybe that's not good. <laughs> I'm no. not sure if I was there or not. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I think, I think more... more more specifically, like like listening to your talk made me realize like I always have a lot of questions about twelve factor sure. stuff, and so like like I don't know. I'll give you my version of the history, and I need to go look this up because I, I I seem to remember when I was an analyst talking with Hiroko at some point. There's two things I remember people went over with me that sounded like just a bunch of uh, nonsense at first. One of them is I remember at some point someone was talking about like reactive programming or something. Sure. And, and it wasn't reactive. What was like the thing before reactive with event driven stuff and event sourcing and something like that. I don't even remember what it was, but it just sounded like a whole bunch of like, that's a solution for a problem that like five people have. Right. But, and then the other one, I think at some point someone from Heroku went over 12 factor stuff with me. And this is a long time ago. And at the time it seemed sort of like, uh, not applicable to anything except Heroku. <laughs> and and so it's, from that perspective, it's kind of amazing that it's, well, this is sort of the first thing that it's like evolved to be like, here's a prescription of if you are, I guess, like doing containerized applications, although I don't think it ever says containers, but, no. but of course that's what Heroku was. So sure. that's kind Maybe of how it, was it came about. Yeah, but it's like, if you're doing things, basically the way I've sorted it in my mind is like, these are like 12 thing comments we have if you're doing, you're deploying your application in immutable containers and uh, you basically want to do stateless things and you also want to do continuous integration and delivery. And then there's some, and then there's another cluster of stuff that kind of falls out, which is, I think they say externalized configuration, yeah. but it's sort of like, instead of manually configuring these things, uh, what you should do is like make it so the configuration is injected to them. Right. And, you know, I think conveniently when this came out, this just coincidentally happened to be that you had to write applications for Heroku. Right. right. <laughs> but it's evolved far, far since then. And so like, like, I, I mean, what's, how do you think about how you kind of chunk out 
these 12 factors sure. things because because I don't feel I mean if you go to like I, I would just keep talking once I ask a question here but like I feel like if you go to the 12 factor site you read it and you're still kind of left wondering like but why sure right sure. like like why why would I do all of this and I right. think the I haven't read it in, in in complete in a while but I think the only thing that they say is like well then it can scale <laughs> well, so you can make an argument that a lot of the things that are in the 12 factors are just good design principles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like there's loose coupling. And yes, like yeah. That. I mean, this has been something that's been kind of, I guess, coming into form in my brain. But but the longer I do this, the more I believe that, you know, I don't quite know the best way to phrase it. So I'm just going to call it like the zeroth law of software engineering, uh-huh. you know, which is like high cohesion and low coupling. You know, that, that yeah. so many of the things we're trying to do are just fundamentally, how do we get high cohesion and low coupling? I mean, I would argue that microservices are just high cohesion and low coupling brought to SOA. You know, so how do we do SOA in a high cohesion, low coupling uh-huh. kind of way? You know, so a lot of the stuff in the 12 factors, you could say, is just some fundamentally good design decisions. You know, yeah, you should have your code in a version control system, probably Git. And, you know, you shouldn't be copying code from one place to another as a way of sharing it. You should export it into a library. You know, I mean, these are just good ideas in yeah, yeah. general terms. So you yeah, should have modularization. Imagine that, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. who, who could have predicted that? Uh-huh. You know, I, I, I look at the legacy apps that I've tried to move to the cloud. And, you know, as, as we talked about today, I mean, that you're going to violate some of those 12 factors mm-hmm. because we built these applications before the cloud existed and before we knew that's how we should design applications. And right, right. And so, like, what would be examples of those? Well, so you take these applications that we wrote five, ten years ago, and uh, one of the violations I see all the time is long startup. You know, because mm-hmm. we would go out to our database and we would cache a whole bunch of stuff into memory. You know, we'd go get states and countries and provinces and, you know, business uh-huh. codes and all this other stuff that, that we knew wasn't really going to change very often. Uh, so, we did load all that to memory instead of using a distributed cache. And that was fine when all we did was reboot our apps, you know, maybe nightly, yeah, yeah, maybe weekly, big deal. Well, you then go to a cloud environment where these things are going to be cattle and they're going to be disposable and an instance is going to go away and come back because maybe it got sick or maybe I need 10 more instances to handle this big rush of traffic I got. Uh-huh. And that three, four, five, 10 minute startup time causes me issues. I can't scale that up. I can't bring those new instances online because if that health check hasn't completed, the router says, oh, well, you must still be sick. I'm going to spin up another instance, another instance, another instance. Yeah. And we kind of lose that whole value. And I, I, guess, I guess maybe that's the, uh, to cut you off to the thing I'm, I'm always fishing for with the 12 factors is like, it doesn't, it's almost like you have to reverse engineer what the operating model is from it, right? Like, whereas, as you were describing, uh, Everything you said, at least in my mind, comes from an operating model of uh, I am going to be running containers just willy-nilly, I being a platform or the the run, I don't know what else to call it, the run space, the runtime. And uh, and and like my job as the runtime is going to be like I might kill it or I might bring it up. Yep. And, and the, way, the way that I scale it, like I always think it's a trick of scaling. The way that I scale it is state is someone else's problem. Sure. And then I just have these like tiny stateless things that I can just in parallel scale up and ho- hopefully the, uh, the state people over there have figured out what to do. And, and, yeah. and so like, but you know, I, I feel like over the years that, well, not over the years, but the 12 factor stuff never begins with, and, and necessarily so, cause it would be really boring, but just to say like, here is the runtime paradigm sure. that you're operating under sure. because so many of the things in it, as you were kind of going over before I cut you off, sort of makes sense, right? Like, if I'm going to be bringing containers up and down, I can't have a two-minute startup time. Right. <laughs> and so, therefore, 
because I have this type of runtime environment, I need you to do your applications in, in this way. Right. And, and I guess, I guess the, the, it's not like a beef, but the, but the, the cognitive like grading I always have in my head is, uh, I feel like it's easy to think of the 12 factors things as what you say causative. Like if you write your, your applications in this way, good things will happen. Whereas like you've got to bring the good thing runtime environment first. Well, and, and reflect on where the 12 factors came from. I mean, yeah, yeah. Characteristics that were shared by successful apps that were running on a Roku. Exactly. You know, so you know, it's a little bit of, I guess, maybe a cart and a horse kind of a problem, right? You know, so it's like, if you're going to design an app for this platform, here are some of the things that you should take, you know, keep right, in mind. Right, right. You know, if you're not going to design for that platform, well, then you could ignore some of this. I, again, I would say a lot of it is just good design principles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, maybe you don't have to worry about the long startup time if, if you're not in one of yeah. those kind of cloudy environments, but I'd be curious to know why you're not. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was, I mean, you're, you're right. Like I was separating them out into like three buckets, but there, there's, there's an initial bucket of just like how you should write good software. Right. Right. And, right. and then it seems like the, the next bucket is sort of like uh, other ways you should write software. Right. Like, like one of them is like, you know, uh, you should have one process per, you know, you should focus on a small process instead mm-hmm. of like one giant multi-process thing. Or like, as I think we're supposed to say, the monolith, the monolith. right. <laughs> or, or whatever. And then, and then there's, there's like, there's like the other group that are like, uh, what would you call it? Like deploying like, like you should do continuous integration right. and like you should, you know, things like that. And then, and then the final cluster is pretty small. It's basically like, like logs. It's like, sure, we all agree on We got to do logging. And then, and then, and then I guess there's like. How we handle that in the cloud. And then this last one is like a, it sort of makes sense, but it's an oddly specific one. Which is what? What is it? Like your admin thing should be a process. Yeah, yeah. Like it's just sort of like that one always kind of struck me as like they just they're like we're at eleven, we can't have eleven. <laughs> we can't we have need the a dozen. Factors. So let's throw another one on there just for fun. Yeah, which which I mean that's another one where like I I assume what that means. I mean I should have the thing in front of me is like it's almost instead of like logging into a box to run shell scripts, uh, you know, not that a box exists, you should. You should these these scripts should be their own containers. These jobs that execute to go yeah. query the system and look at things, which again is like sounds cool, but that's pretty specific, right? Yeah, th- th- I agree <laughs> with you. That that one is is oddly specific. I, I, you know, I don't know the history on why that one popped up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it, it is a little a little bit of a head scratcher. You know, but again, I mean, I think where we run into some interesting challenges is if I've got this legacy application, which will violate some number of these factors, you know, how many do we need to fix to move it to the cloud? And, you know, I've had some interesting debates with folks over that. I, I right. had one architect tell me that, well, you know, if an application doesn't meet all 12 factors, we shouldn't even bother trying to put it in the cloud. And like, well, that's pretty extreme, you know, because the odds of us taking a legacy application and, essentially rewriting it to be 12 factors compliant. I mean, that, that yeah, yeah. isn't a good business return on something like that. And so it becomes more that pragmatic. Well, how far on that continuum do we need to get? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what gives us the right mix of business value to effort yeah. to say that, that that's logical ending point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get, I, I mean, tell me if, if you found this to be the case, but it seems like you could equally kind of cluster them out about like, these are the most important ones. Oh, absolutely. So, so do these three. Yeah. And then it's also important to do these other ones. And, and then a further division is like, when, when I look at them, it seems like there's, there's sort of like process oriented ones. And then there's like very technical things, right? Like your loose, totally. loose coupling and is, is very well technical oriented, right. Ver- versus like, uh, like what's one of the process oriented ones? Like, uh, I mean, even the idea of like, 
having trunk as where you check something in. Sure. Like it's a tool thing, but it's also a very process oriented stuff. And so I would imagine when you're thinking about legacy stuff, to some extent, the technical things are more important because right. like if you don't get your legacy chunk set up technically correct, it like just won't run. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I mean, well, like the, the long startup time is a perfect example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you've got a five minute startup time and we can't get that down to a few seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, whatever is reasonable within, you know, how the, it's configured. Yeah. Uh, you really lose that ability to self heal and auto scale. And, and that kind of diminishes a huge advantage of the cloud, at least from my point of view. Yeah. You know, so better get that one right. Uh, you better switch the logging over or else you're not going to have any logs because that instance you're writing out to that file system, it might get blown away later today, you know, yeah. so you're not going to be able to go look at your logs cause they're gone. Now, the interesting thing to me is a lot of these things actually end up being better for us as developers because, like, I get this big stream of logs and I get way more powerful tools to actually go interact with them. And it's like, hey, this is a lot better than me trying to use a text editor and do a little, you know, command F to go try to find some random string and yeah, 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 10,000 yeah. lines of log output. Yeah, so, yeah. How, how much time have you spent diagnosing stuff with logs? Just, you know, in oh, your God. in your illustrious career. <laughs> you know, it, it's... It, Probably uh, more than a year, I would think, honestly, of my whole life. Yeah, I mean, just, it's just total clock I'm time. sure, because it just you, you spend so much time staring at logs trying to figure out what happened and what went wrong. And the, the funny thing to me about logging is it, it's, it's that hard thing to find the Goldilocks point. You know, you, yeah, you yeah, either yeah. under log and there's not enough data or you typically over log and there's just so much noise you can't find the signal and you can't find the thing that's really meaningful. And then yeah. you start doing really crazy things in your logs to try to make stuff stand out. And then you get these weird anti-patterns where there's, well, if you put five asterisks in and, you know, or whatever, and people start looking for weird patterns. And yeah, it, it, it makes me shudder a little bit. I've, I have never thought about like the cumulative effort I've spent on logging, but I would not surprise me if it's, yeah. if it's more than a person. Here. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I used to, I used to work on systems management software and then when I was an analyst cover it and, and, um, it can be a really annoying field if you like study it for more than 10 years because sure. because the same sort of things it's not that the same exact things repeat each other it's that it's that the tools you have they're almost like in a line and then one tool gets really good and you kind of forget about it and then you move on to doing the next tool and then right. eventually you forget about it and each successive way like it's base. I think basically what the the ordering of the tools is always like. Uh, like you were saying, you know, like you go onto the, you get to the machine and you like pick up the metaphoric objects you're looking at and you look at them right. and you poke and prod them and like you know you go look at this configuration file and go see what the process looks like and this stuff, and then you can kind of automate that where you're collecting it. Yep. And then and then at some point after that is like uh, you you got to have logs. Right. And you get and then and then, of course, as part of logs is like now that I have all these logs, I need to make sense of them. Right. Not only logs from one unit of suffering, but like you know, I've got a cluster, I've got to collate them together. And then and then like the most advanced form of that is like and then I need to trace one single process through yeah. the logs. And so you go through that cycle. And then another characteristic of the systems management cycle is like so then the log people say that the the uh, pick it up and diagnose people are complete idiots. Yeah. Right. You always are blaming the people before you, like some sort of terrible revolutionary. We're, we're good at finger pointing. Aren't yeah. We? Yeah. And then, of course, after that, you have the uh, I don't know what to call it, but you always arrive at this point where you're like, we're going to use complex analytics and just like consume all the stuff. AI. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it'll just tell you what's going on. Right. And then, of course, 
those log people and those monitoring people are idiots. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course, no one ever solves the complex analytics thing. But anyways, I go over that whole little uh, mini rant there to like looking at the 12 factor stuff, the idea of like having logs, right. Is an interesting, like, it's not that it's a tell. I sound like I'm being all cynical, but it's sort of like, it's like the thing that's available. <laughs> right like it's the tool we've had yeah yeah like like if you have immutable containers or however they call it right these little containers that are coming and going you'll like never get a chance to log into them no. and check them out and then like you could or the one you needed is gone yeah the you could have the problem well we blew it exactly away. you could sort of monitor them like query them to know what their state is but really all you're ever going to have is the logs yeah. like afterwards so like that's what you have to deal with so therefore logs are important and yep. and and I, and I guess I guess the point, since it's 12-factor development or apps and not 12-factor sysadmining, <laughs> right? Like, is that, hey, developers, you should be logging. Right, right. <laughs> you, you should log a lot right. of, of, of what you're doing. I don't know. But the, the, all of these factors, like, I, I spend a lot, I spend too much time over the years trying to figure out, like, why that factor? And sure. How does that map into the platform you have? Which... Which then I'll come up with a question here okay. instead of me just talking. But like, like how how pervasive do you think the use of twelve factor stuff is Ooh. in in the types of runtime environments people use nowadays? It's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think anybody who is moving an app to the cloud has certainly done that evaluation on the app yeah. to see where it fits. I think the number of truly twelve factor app compliant apps is pretty small. And and like like when when you say the cloud there, like like what does that mean in in that context? Well, whether that's on premises, whether that's public cloud, you know, I, whether that's in a Docker container, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think. It's but just a, a containerized application, right? Some kind of yeah, a, yeah. environment where you say, "Here's my code, please run it for me." You know, do yeah. your thing. You know, I mean, I, I I did this at my my last job. We evaluated our 400 plus legacy applications to figure out whether they're good or not good candidates for the cloud. And mm -hmm. so part of the metric we ran them through was 12 factor compliance. You know, oh, they right, weren't right. the only things we looked for. There were there were a handful of other questions that we were asking, but but that was the core of it. And then we used that to basically. You know, we had kind of a scoring algorithm that came out of that, and then we essentially bucketed the application into this is a good candidate, this is a candidate, and this uh -huh. is a bad candidate. And then there was a sliver that fell off because they had some constraint that meant you can't go to the cloud. And and what, was it just like a spreadsheet with twelve rows and then columns, of more like or less, or, or whichever way you oriented? Let, it? let me put it this way: the, the big lesson I learned on that is if you're going to do data collection you should just build an app to do the data collection. You yeah. should have a, a, a system administrative process in its own process. Absolutely. You should build a little 12 factor <laughs> app. It's Cause what I discovered very quickly is like it, yeah. it was the spreadsheet wasn't a bad way to get the data from people. The thing that made it challenging was when you had 400 or 500 or 600, however many we got back, you then have to make sense of it. And yeah, yeah, what yeah. I discovered very quickly is, is like, senior director type people just assume they can ask random queries and then you can somehow just pull that out of the spreadsheet. And so I would literally get these questions like, can you tell me how many apps violate this factor? And if it was in a database, well, sure, select star from where, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, that'd be easy. But it's in an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. Now, luckily for me, I had a, a friend, a guy who sat right next to me who heard me talking about this one day and he's like, well, I know how to manipulate Excel spreadsheets. Sure. And so he did a whole yeah. bunch of macro-y stuff for me. You just me. need a pivot table. He, he saved me years, frankly. I mean, the, the yeah. stuff he did for me was fantastic and it helped me kind of sort through these things. 
but the lesson I took out of that is you really want to get that into a database so that you can actually yeah, do some more complicated it and do more interesting things with it. But yeah, you know, the, the part that I found really fascinating out of that is, you know, we had done enough pilots that we kind of had a sense for how long it took to fix any of those 12 factors that you violated. And, and there was a collection that was pretty common. You know, I mean, we, we ran into the long startup time, of course, and the hard coded configuration and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so we know, we knew after doing four or five of these, that that was probably about three days or that was probably a week. And so we could actually add that in. And I had that as part of the formula to spit out the other end that said, okay, well, based on the factors that you violate, it should take you about four weeks to lift and load into, uh-huh. you know, for us it was PCF. Um, you know, I mean, it was a rough swag. I mean, I was never going to say hundred percent. Yeah. You're going to hit that number, but we at least had an order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. And so we could use that then to feed into the prioritization sort of part of this to say, well, these apps are actually fairly easy to load. And then you kind of map that to the business value you get out of the app. And, you know, is it going to be with us for the next five years or is this going to be retired in six months? Yeah. yeah. So you can start to make some decisions about how do we prioritize where, where all these apps. your effort. Exactly. Because uh-huh. you know, and then that's where a lot of organizations are at. You know, you've got this huge legacy set of apps that, that are delivering business value for you. You want to try to modernize them, but not all apps are equal. Some right, right. apps are more equal than others. So let's figure out what those are and then get that into a nice prioritized list and go forth and prosper. So how, how do you evaluate each of the factors? Well, it so again, some of it w- was pretty easy because like logging, we knew they were all going to violate logging. Right? They were all writing to a log file. So that was an easy Yeah, yeah instead of stand, standard out or whatever. The biggest challenge was realizing that like as an architect, I couldn't evaluate your application. I didn't have mm. the subject matter expertise to do it. And so we had to identify for each of these 400 projects who was the subject matter expert. And that person then had to do the evaluation. Where that became challenging is some people were very diligent and they did very good work and the data we got back was very good. We had other people who copied and pasted and really weren't paying attention and in a handful of instances left a whole bunch of stuff blank and it's like, well... No, we, we really need you to go in Yeah, we yeah. really need you to say, do you do this or not? And you know, part of what we had actually done was, was break the 12 factors out to be a little more verbose, you know, so they're sort of mm. individual bullet points within each factor in some cases. And so that kind of made it a little more nuanced, you know, in terms of how that yeah, was done. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds useful. It was kind of interesting to see how that was done. Now, we, we quibbled maybe a little bit about, because that was our enterprise architect team had actually built that out, you know, so yeah. I don't necessarily know how they came to some of those conclusions about this is these five bullet points somehow are part of this one factor, but that gave us a little more nuance in terms of, all right, well, do you really violate that or not? And how much of that factor do you really violate? You know, which is why I don't think we had any apps that violated all 12. I mean, I don't, there, I can't honestly think of too many apps that would, Uh because you'd have to basically not be using version control, which I really want to believe is yeah, no longer yeah, controversial. Yeah. Right? And back to what we were saying, there are several of those criteria that, that are less about the app and more about the process that you're using sure. around it. Like, you know, or even just good design. I mean, some of yeah, it's like yeah. you're probably doing this almost by accident if you, you know, have some <laughs> exactly. design chops, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then what does that end up looking like? I mean, since you did so many of them, like uh, what's the feel you get for applications in aggregate? Like are there usually, is, is it like only three of these factors are going to be followed mostly on average? Or like, or is it kind of like, for the most part, everything's fine. Or like, where, where do the problems come up that you have to work well, so on? You start to discover that, that 
there are certain factors that are violated almost universally, uh-huh. and there's other factors that are followed almost universally. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, which is really fascinating, you know. Yeah. And, and it's not a hundred percent, obviously, but, but you know, we kind of knew there were going to be a few, like like the logging and the long startup, you know, that most uh-huh. of our apps were going to violate it. Uh, dependency management was another one that was very frequently seen because I mean, we didn't have to worry about it. You're just like, well, it works. Don't worry, it's probably on the glass path. It's fine. Well, right, right. Nope. Now you you need to tell me if you need that jar, that DLL, whatever it happens to be. We have to explicitly define that as, as yeah. You need to manifest for it exactly. Right? Yeah, you got to be a lot more precise. Uh, you know, so you start to see some of those patterns, and then again, you can start to develop those rule of thumbs that say, well, it takes us about a week to fix that problem. It takes us about two weeks to fix that problem, and so now you can start to actually get some rough estimates, and, and that turned out to be really useful. You know, because you had some people who were like, oh God, you know. It'll take forever to move this app to the cloud. Uh-huh. And then you look at it, you're like, yeah, it's probably six weeks. You know, I think we can probably do it. You right, know? Right. And so it really helped people kind of conceptualize that, that this wasn't a multi-year process, you know, that this was something that could be done reasonably quickly. And then now, okay, well, let's just prioritize it. And does that make sense within the overall life cycle of this application and where the business is going with that? And are we willing to make that investment or not? And yeah, if yeah. we're not, that's fine. But yeah. you know, at least we're making it from at least somewhat of an educated place as opposed to just throwing darts at the wall and hoping it works out. Right, well. right. Or picking picking cool-sounding projects. Sure, or just putting a whole bunch of names in a bucket and pull it out and say, yeah. you know, may your, the odds forever be in your favor. So, so what was the original motivation to do all of that? Well, so a lot of it was just trying to figure out, like, as we're going to modernize this portfolio, what does that look like? And yeah. knowing that we had such a big portfolio, we needed to do this in a more methodical way. Yeah. You know, it couldn't just be let people randomly do whatever they wanted. Uh, we certainly, as a business driver, as a monetary driver, were trying to get as many workloads there as possible because it was far cheaper environment for us to run in. You know, we had uh, a situation where being able to shut down regions was going to save us significant money. And so uh-huh. that becomes a pretty powerful driver. So for us, it was really just trying to get our heads around, well, how much of our portfolio is it even reasonable to put in the cloud? You know, so that we could then have those conversations with our senior leadership. You know, so if they were getting this pressure to, you know, move all the apps, it's like, well, ten percent can't be moved. Okay. So just understand that these guys have a dependency. Maybe they talk to the mainframe in some way we can't abstract away, or they've got a third party vendor thing that doesn't have a cloud option. You just you can't move this. So it's sort of like an infrastructure optimization motivation. Yeah, absolutely. We want to we wanna we're we're using lots of air quotes here, but we want to move to the cloud. Yes. Because it's gonna allow us to spend less on infrastructure yep. and, and hopefully also uh, work at least as well, if not better. Right. <laughs> and, right. and so in, so then you go through that exercise of like, well, what are the things we can migrate? And yes. We can't migrate. Now that makes a lot of sense. Well, and then it, again, it was feeding that prioritization, you know, because it's like to understand, you know, there's this kind of Goldilocks, right? Where it's like, if this application is easy to move and we get a lot of business value for moving it, mm-hmm. put that at the head of the list. Yeah, yeah. If this application is really hard to move and we get very little business value out of it, put it at the bottom of the list. Yeah. You know, there's just no way you can move 400 apps in, in a month, in a year. So you have to have some sense of what that looks like. And, and that fundamentally fed into a roadmap, you know. Okay, yeah. So over the course of the next, I think we did it over like three years, when do we want to slot these applications in and what's reasonable? Yeah, yeah. So you work with the architects, you work with the business partners to make sure that they're all on board with, okay, we, we're targeting your app on the cloud for this quarter of this year. Is everybody okay with that? You know? Yeah. And then you kind of feed that back into the loop to say, all right, this is what we're thinking. And, you know, then the senior leadership can say, well, 
we want to accelerate that, what's it going to take to do that? Or, no, that seems about right. Or how come these apps are way out here? And then they could have some conversations with, with those teams to say, why can't you move up sooner? We think we'd get more value by moving mm. you up sooner. And it's like, okay, well, you guys go have that conversation because that's what they told me. So Yeah. So so what do you what do you call that stuff that's preventing the applications from from uh, being modernized, right? And I ask because it would be easy to call it like tech debt or something, like technical debt, but but it's not really that because like it wasn't debt. It was just like that's how the applications were written you, by design. You couldn't have written an app 10 years ago with yeah. the cloud in mind because it, it wasn't an option. Yeah. I mean, so, I guess it's just like legacy characteristics or something sure. or like what? how would you describe those? It, yeah, that's that, I like that phrasing you know, because, it, I mean, to your point, an application that you wrote 10, 15 years ago, by definition, you couldn't have written it with the 12 factors in mind. Yeah. You know, it's just not possible. So you can't beat yourself up over the fact that an application violates some of these things because they weren't constraints for us before. And they yeah. are now. So part of what I saw there was fear. It was people like, ooh, this is new and scary. I don't want to be the first person to try that. I want mm. someone else to be the first person to try it. And some of that's reasonable. You know, it's, it's, I think about this a lot, ironically enough, with food. You know, there's certain food items that you look at and, and we eat them and we enjoy them. And you think, boy, the first person who ate this had to be really hungry. Right, right, right. You know, or, or there's, there's, what is it, like a walnut or something where it's like if you don't treat it properly, it'll kill you. But if you treat it properly, it doesn't. I mean, there, there's some nut like that where you have, to, you have to know how to like cook that it. It might or be something. children. Could be children. Yeah, who knows? But you think about like all the trial and error that went into figuring out how to properly cook that thing or how to properly prepare that thing so mm-hmm. it didn't kill you or make you sick. And it's kind of remarkable, right? You didn't want to be the first one. Here, try this. I think it'll be fine. You know, what, there's, there's that, that poisonous fish that you can get if you're really crazy. Yeah, 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 and the yeah. chef has to know how to do it. Uh-huh. Again, the first person who tried that, or if you're learning that skill, right? You're learning how to make the fish that way. Do you really want to be part of the test group? Right, right. It's like, sure, you can go to, you know, the, the, the place where they train you how to cut hair and you can get a really cheap haircut because the person who's cutting your hair has never cut hair before and you get what you pay for, you know I mean? But if you're willing to make that trade off, fine. Right. Um, but I think about that a lot, even with some of the things we try to do in software, you know, we don't, we haven't reached that maturity level yet where we have all these building blocks that we understand mm-hmm. how to use. You, know, you think about like the architect who designed this building we're in today, you know, there are more or less kind of picking up Lego blocks and snapping them together. They know that yeah, yeah. this beam can support this much weight in this configuration. If we do it like this, it can do that. And they know all the things about load-bearing walls and all that kind of stuff. So they have these, these really big abstractions that they can work with. And we historically haven't. You know, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that if you and I wanted to write a program, it's like, okay, well, the first thing we need to do is write an operating system. Uh, and then we need to write a compiler. Mm-hmm. And then we need to write a text editor. And then we can start writing some programs. Right, right. You know, and we don't have to do that anymore, right? We get our own operating system. We don't deal with that. We don't have to worry about compilers as much, you know. And so we've moved up the abstraction tree. But we're, we're still at this phase. And the analogy I like to use actually comes from Calvin and Hobbes. I love Calvin and Hobbes. Uh-huh. And there's this great comic where they're driving over a bridge, and there's this weight limit sign. And Calvin says, hey, Dad, how do they know what the weight limit is on the bridge? And he says, well, Calvin... They drive heavier and heavier trucks over the bridge until the bridge falls down. Then they rebuild the bridge and they weigh the last truck and then they put the sign up. He says, oh, okay, that makes sense. Uh That's kind of what we do in software. Yeah. It's like, is this a good use of this technology? 
Uh, I don't know. Let's try it and find out. Yeah, and then hopefully you build a bridge the exact same way. Hopefully, the time. right? And and you know, I mean, there is that analogy which says, well, if you want to know how long it'll take to build something, you know, build one and throw it away, and now you know. Yeah, you know, that's and that's right. still kind of what we're doing. There's a lot of trial and error here. You know, so you, you you try something out, and one of the things that I've seen repeatedly in our industry is somebody will create something new and interesting and cool, and they'll it'll solve a problem that they have, and they'll talk about it, blog about it, whatever about it. And then a whole bunch of other people get really excited. They're like, well, I need to do that thing too. And then they start applying it in places it makes no sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then it falls over. And then you get the inevitable backlash of that technology is terrible. No one should do it. I mean, you, you had a tweet about that very recently that I've, I've actually stolen and I use in some of my talks, mm. you know, which is exactly that hype cycle that, you know, and then go back to step one, you know, hey, look at this. Isn't this cool? You know, no one should ever use oh, this, right, especially right. if you're trying to, you know, put up a, a blog or something, you know, and, and that's part of what we're dealing with is that in, in many cases, the only way we know if it doesn't work is by trying it and discovering it doesn't work yeah, yeah. and learning, hopefully from that. You know, and then, and then rinse, repeat until we figure this stuff out. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, and I guess, I mean, that is that is something that's interesting about 12-factor stuff is it seems to have become, as you say, if you want to put something in the cloud, you should follow these rules. Right. Which, which is sort of remarkable given that it was like just, you know, a marketing web page. <laughs> so, you know, mo- most most marketing, no matter who writes it, is, is never really that uh, useful sure, sure. <laughs> over the long term. But so, so like... Uh, uh, you know, to, 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 to the point of like how you, how you write things well and how, how you're crafting those. And also like, it's a good way of reflecting on, I think, migrating applications to it. Right. So like an- another, like the way that 12 factor stuff thinks about an application, right. It seems to be that like basically, uh, and it sort of, it says it uses different words, but it's like, first of all, your application is going to be like transient. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to come and go, so you can't depend on anything being there. So it has to be stateless or disposable, as I think they would say. Treat it like a cow. A cow. Yeah, 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 right. And and then and then there's there's a whole lot of interesting stuff scurrying around with the idea of externalizing your configuration, which which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's like uh, what would you call it? I mean, I I am always too too sarcastic about it, but there's sort of like the uh, the the big asterisk of backing service, sure, right, like to handle all this stuff for you. But going back to that, like, like how would you compare, like I haven't actually written software in a long time, but I mean, tell me if this is, has changed any over the past 10 or so years. Like, it seems like you would write a Java application and like, you can kind of see how it's almost the opposite of a 12 factor application <laughs> where the goal of a Java application is there's of course no .exe in Java because it's Java and not Microsoft. But Basically, you're you're creating like a giant .exe file that embeds all the middleware that you need and like all all of the various layers that you need and like you know you just start it up in your app server and it has everything and at worst you'll have I guess they had ear files which are just a way of bundling together a bunch of these other files. Well, let and, me channel Josh and say you know make jar not work. That's that's right. And and then but there was something that like. I mean, and it's used today in Java applications to be uh, 12-factor compliant is like they were always encouraging you to pull your configuration out <laughs> and put sure. it in like property files and then I guess XML files sure. and then environment variables and things like that. But there seems to be like, I, I don't know, that model seems to, I guess that's not the right way to do a cloud application. Like, so how do you, how would you, if you built, 
a war and an ear and all that stuff. Like, how do you we probably wouldn't do a war pull it apart? Right? We would. Yeah, yeah. Keep, keep it as a jar. Again, I, I do like Josh's quote. Sure, that, sure. You know, make jar, not war. I mean, either way, nowadays you can execute all of them just the same. Yeah, it, it doesn't really matter what the the three letter extension after your zip file right. is. But it's, it's all yeah. It's just a yet another way of encapsulating your your, your code, I guess. But uh, you know that, that's a good question. I mean, again, I would argue that that a lot of these things, it's just the design we've been trying to do for a while. I mean, right, external right. configuration that that's always been a good idea. You know, hard coded configuration has never been a wonderful thing for us. I mean, I I still distinctly remember early early on working on apps where you know, we had some of the like passwords were in clear text. If you knew yeah. how to log on to the right server, you could see the non-expiring username and password. You know, and it's like, well, I mean, we didn't have a better option at the time. You know, that that yeah. was the best we could do, and you just kind of had a little bit of that obscurity kind of concept of security, which you know worked out okay. Uh, now we wouldn't want to do that today. You know, but but that's. Again, to me, that's just part of like how do we design good software? You know, not so much whether that's going to run in the cloud or whether that's going to run somewhere else and mm-hmm. what that looks like. But what I find exciting about this is just that shift from I take my, you know, if we're going to talk about Java in particular, I take my Java code from one instance of an app server to another instance of an app server that I call test. And it's on another physical piece of hardware somewhere else. And, you know, I inevitably run into these issues where, well, it, it worked on my dev server. Sure. And it doesn't work on my test server. Why the heck not? You know, right, what's right. different between these two servers? They're supposed to be identical. You know, and then you spend days, hours, weeks trying to figure out well, what's different. And that is a really unfun problem to solve. <laughs> sure. You know, and so, yeah, and, and, and the thing that's so frustrating is like all the time we're spending chasing down those rat holes. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. time we're not solving business problems. Yeah. You know, and our customers don't care about those things. They just want us to get the next card done, get the next story done with whatever they happen to be. Yeah, yeah. For requirements these days. And so being able to kind of lift that abstraction up to, well, no, no, this, this is a unit. You know, you're essentially saying your app server and everything it needs is all one block. And that's the thing that we're quote unquote moving from one instance to another. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, let's be honest until we get to prod, it's generally not actually physically changing anything. We're just pointing at a new thing. You know, this, this URL goes here now instead of yeah, over yeah. here. And right. You know, who cares? It's, you know, might even be on the exact same, you know, rack that it was on before but so what yeah you know, so to me i think that's that's really useful to get out of this mindset of i'm going to log on to server one two three xyz you know, who, who cares you know that, that should be somebody else's responsibility you know not me i don't want to worry about that level of, of abstraction i want to just focus on hey i have a business problem i need to solve and this happens to be the right language to solve it in now here take this thing and please execute it for me so my uh-huh. business person can get their value out of it right right yeah, yeah. So, so I, I mean, I guess I guess that is the. Uh, it's a continuous story of we've been trying to do things in this good way, but we didn't do it very well last time. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> right, and 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 then and then you know, if, if if where we are right now is in right, like when we get to n plus one, we'll have the same opinion. Yes, that like yes, the way we used to do things was we didn't do it very. You're well. absolutely right, but, it, and that, that's an important thing to remember. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me about this industry is we do a really bad job of learning from the past. You know, I have this theory that for, for most developers, time begins with the first language they learned. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That anything that happened before that is ancient history. Nobody knows anything about it. This is where all the ideas started from and came from. And then they don't 
we, we typically don't reflect upon the fact that, well, no, that idea came from 35, 40 years ago. And <laughs> That's it was a right. really good idea then, and it's still a good idea now. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you look at Fred Brooks. I mean, th- this guy was making statements about our industry 30 years ago that are true today, and they're going to be true in 30 years, and they're going to be true in 100 years. You know, that, that to me is an important thing. We need to reflect upon that stuff. And that, that's a good point because go forward five years, we're going to be doing something different. I don't know what it is. I can't predict the future. Yeah. But it'll be different. And you're absolutely right. We'll reflect back on this and we'll be talking about oh, our legacy cloud portfolio. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and we're right. going to be arguing about, God, we were really stupid back then, weren't we? You know? And it's like, no, we weren't. We, we did the best we could with the tools we had in front of us. Five years from now, we're going to know more. Ten years from now, we're going to know more. Yeah. And so it'll just keep evolving. And, and we need to appreciate that. You know, and we need to reflect upon too that a lot of what we do today is just a renamed variant of something we did before. Yeah, you know, I I, I understand the hype around microservices, and I get that. But microservices are—you could make an argument it's just SOA done right. You know, and we can argue that SOA is not a heck of a lot different from what we were doing with EJB, which wasn't a heck of a lot different from Corba, and I'm sure there was something that came before that. Right, you know, right. And they all have very similar characteristics. Yeah, and and I guess I guess I guess uh, the thing you're you're noodling on there is, I mean, it's helping me, helping me realize one of the, you know, one of the uh, confusions I have about 12 factor stuff, right. Is it's a mixture of, and it's very coy in how it does it, but it's a mixture of technology prescriptions and general principles. Right. Right. And, and the issue is always, well, the, the, the core issue with it is the technology prescriptions don't really ever tell you what the technology is. <laughs> they right. just tell you what the desired effect or constraint of using the technology is, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I forget in it, but, like, if it was written nowadays, it would probably be, like, package your software in containers. Sure. Right? And, like, done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like use a container to package it and use a YAML file to store the configuration and then use this kind of, like, environment variable. I don't know this stuff, really, but use this kind of environment variable passing and then in. And use Kubernetes. And then, yeah. And then when the container gets packaged, open up the YAML file and jam these things right. into the environment variable so that when it boots up, you've got your configuration injected. Whereas, right. like, it's a little more poetic. Yeah. 12-factor yeah. stuff, it's more, more poetic lyrical. in its approach, yeah. right? Whereas it has principles in there that are like, you should have loose coupling, right? <laughs> right? Like, right. however it is you want to achieve that. And and I think, I forget the timeline, but I mean, I think microservices as a concept started crystallizing after 12-factor stuff, right? So, it, so. It, it would be easy to kind of say that like, oh, when they say loose coupling, they mean do, they mean do microservices, sure. which is ret, is probably to retcon it is probably true. Like what we're saying is to do microservices, but... It it is like it's hard to sort out those things that are principles that you should be following versus like technology things. And then you're reminding me of one that I always forget, and I, I only remembered it when I actually looked at the list later today. I don't even re- remember you talking about it, but you must have. But you alluded to it, which is like you should have uh, dev prod parity. Yeah, which is sort of like that's an easy one to just sort of like I don't I don't know if this is a proper use of it, but just sort of like whistle past yeah. as you walk past it, which is. Because you were just describing, right? The problem that you have all of the time, <laughs> if you don't catch it, is it worked in, uh, you know, you got that little girl with the firehouse. Like you got, it worked over here and now it doesn't work over yeah. there. And this is another one of those things to go on another long monologue here that I feel like was a, what would you call it? A unintended finding of it being Heroku, which was like, there is no difference between Heroku dev and Heroku prod. As far as a consumer, it's like, there's only the Heroku, right? (laughs) Like you can't, 
So, I mean, there's a difference in configuration, but it's the same exact like you, setup. You might consider something different. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and you might be routing it differently Absolutely. and things like that, but it's the same exact, I mean, unless they're doing something bonkers, it's the same exact thing that yeah. you're running. And I think it's going to end up on a rack somewhere. Exactly. Like, like you're, the dynamo you're using over here is an inst- it's not an instance, but it's, it was just a different ver- it's just different yep. instance of the dynamo here. And you see that in Pivotal Cloud Foundry and other stuff. And I, and I think like, that's something I never see. I, I very rarely pe- see people talk about. And even with Pivotal Cloud Foundry, they'll talk about having multiple foundations and yep. things like that. And it seems like the goal is to have the one cloud, right? right? And then that will both force and eliminate a lot of issues. <laughs> Well, it's, it's taking variables out of play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and what's fascinating to me is I spent a lot of my career developing Java on a Windows desktop that was then deployed to some Linux variant. Exactly. Right. It's like, wow, who would have thunk it that this app server running on Windows isn't identical to that app server running on yeah. Linux machines? Yeah, let alone configuring the database and the, the, the exactly. networking and like exactly. all the stuff. Yeah. And yeah. so anytime we add variables, we're just making our job harder. Yeah. And I mean, so that's, I mean, the way, the way that you're detailing it is like, that's an instance where you could externalize the configuration all you wanted. Right. <laughs> but, but if you have drastic, if you're, if you're a window, if you're a windows in, in development and Linux in production, like who cares? I mean, there, there are going obvi- to be obviously it's going to be better, but you're still going to find problems. Exactly. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm finding that people don't talk about that parody very much, no. but that seems like, that seems like one of those things that you sort of like, you should probably do that first because it's going to get you a huge amount of gain. Kind of back to your spreadsheet example, like whether we modernize these applications or not, if there was extreme parity between the development environment and the production environment, or it was the same environment, things would probably run better. Right. But anyhow. Oh, I mean, you asked me like how much of my time was spent staring at log files. It's probably equally as much of how much of my time I've spent dealing with issues where this environment was slightly different. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, and some of those differences are so minor, it takes you days to track it down. Yeah. And it doesn't even seem like it should yeah, matter. I've, I've done plenty of that. It's oh, terrible. yeah. Every software developer has. Yeah. You know, the, the worst example I personally ran across is we had two servers that were at the same patch level, but the patches had been applied in different orders. <laughs> And yeah, that yeah, yeah. exposed some strange, you know, nuance of behavior that drove us nuts for days. And yeah. that's really when you just kind of pound your head against the table and you're like, why do I do this? Yeah. You know, there has to be a better way. And and in fairness, today there is. You know, I mean, let's be honest, 15 years ago, this was a harder problem to solve. Uh, you know, you couldn't have identical environments because we well, had to buy these custom, you know, servers that were really expensive with these custom operating yeah, yeah. systems. And so, you know, we threw the app server on there as a way of maximizing return on that investment. And so you fast forward to today and it's like, well, now spinning up a new instance is trivial. And it's, yeah. it takes seconds and it's free. And, and then in theory, there's also like enough isolation between your diff- different spaces or whatever right. you want to call it that... You could actually be running development and production in the same cluster, sure or, or you could actually. That's that's not that's too fine tooth of a way of putting it. But like I always think, like you know, if you deploy to like Google or Amazon or Azure, like it's there's there's parity. I mean, I'm going right. back to the same thing of like it's it doesn't it. That, you, that, you don't that check cloud, a box that says this that says, is this going is to problem now. Right, right, right. The, the cloud doesn't care. No, it's like, <laughs> hey, I'm going to run your workload. Yeah, cool, yeah, here you go. And so you you sort of again you instantly get that parity right. without having to try too hard. I mean, I guess, I guess then what you have to do is to not mess up that default state that you yes. get and, yes. and say like, 
I want this type of server in uh, in development, and then I want you to switch it over to this other type of server in in production, yeah. which or whatever they call it nowadays, profile. Well, and again, I mean that's why that higher level of abstraction is a win for us. Because yeah. If we're not down to that level in the weeds where we're checking boxes on you know what specifically we want, give me this many cores and this much memory or whatever, we have fewer opportunities to screw that kind of stuff up. And and if we don't care, then it, and we shouldn't, I would argue in most situations, like here. Here's my workload. Run it for me. You know, the cloud, again, doesn't care whether that's a prod workload or a test workload or a dev yeah, workload. Yeah. And so that, again, to me is fundamentally a win because then when I point my prod load balancer at it, same thing I tested in dev and the same thing my customers signed off on and the same thing my QA guys yeah. know, went through, that eliminates a whole class of problems. And, and I can make an argument that's one of the biggest advantages we get of the cloud right there is the fact that we get that that right. parity and 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 then and then like all these 12 factor things that sort of feed into each other it's, it's at that point that like externalized configuration becomes really handy because sure. because in 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 reasonable theory so to speak right well like, my test database better be different than my prod database. yeah 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 I mean, I mean so that that's the last thing we'll get to is like data it's sort of like oh if i could have been stateless this whole time nothing would have been broken you know our lives would be so much easier <laughs> if we didn't have to deal with data yeah yeah but but i mean even before that right so if you have some deployment problems if your configuration is externalized again not that it solves a problem but it's a lot easier to like run the diff on it Right. right. And and then and then if your configuration comes up of is exactly the same, then I guess you're back to being screwed. But <laughs> at, at least there's that chance to have like caught like, yes. oh oops. We had this gigantic configuration file that is just a plain text kind of file that we can actually look at. Yep. Versus like you were saying, uh we manually installed these patches in this or in this order or not in this order, and then we had to update right. this thing and like so we don't have a way of actually verifying what we did other than our hopeful memories of it. Right. So anyway, so then the last part, so you got these backing services <laughs> and like, like both, both in the work that, that you've done, right? Like, and then also just thinking about them, like, uh, like what is a backing service? Sure. What's the deal with that? Well, so, so I look at that, you know, especially as we talk about state. So we say these apps are stateless, but we don't really have stateless apps. You know, there's going to be something written out, but we need to have a durable place to put that. You know, so there has to be something that we're not just throwing away and recreating randomly. Yeah. You know, and, and all of the environments will give you some way of either having a file system you can write to or something that looks like a file system or, you know, database, things like that. And so it's being able to kind of compose that in as, hey, I need ability to write out the disk. I need the ability to save this into a database. Give me that. Well, here, here's a service you can plug into for you know, a MySQL instance or something. And, and I don't have to worry about how that instance gets spun up. You know, in a perfect world, I just say, give me a large one or give me a small one. Uh-huh. And it springs into existence and here's how I connect to it. And now my app can talk to it. And, and that is also managed by my platform. So I don't have to, to deal with all the, you know, the rigmarole. So it, it's, I guess the way I look at it is, we want the app to be stateless in the sense that I'm not putting anything into memory, you know, that I'm going to rely on coming back. That if I do need something to be yeah. there the next time this request comes in, I'm putting that somewhere durable so that when I come back, I can now talk to that. The new instance that gets created when this one gets sick or when we're scaling yeah, out yeah, yeah. just gets pointed to that, that service that knows how yeah, to do and, and, and then another way I interpret that is like, uh, <clears throat> I don't know what people call it nowadays, but like don't embed middleware and, frameworks sure <laughs> right like maybe maybe if you make if the distinction is like a framework is just like a better string manipulator than than whatever that's sure. fine but like don't like 
don't be responsible for running your own queue system or database, <laughs> right? And, you know, don't be responsible for your own batch job management system. Sure. Like there's all these, I guess people call them services now. There's all these services that like you should not be embedding in your application. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, it, going back to the thing I used to know, right? Like if you're building a big Java application, even if it's in a jar file, you could like zip in a database, right? Like okay. you, could, you could embed whatever you wanted in right. there and, and rely on it. And then you could even like, if you had your own database in there, you could sort of like say, now I need storage. And then all of a sudden you're managing all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that seems to be another side effect of that is like, you shouldn't embed stuff. <laughs> like, well, it's, like you should have them running independently yeah. as, as their own, as a service, as yeah. their own thing. What's, what do you want to have to manage? You know, and so by having that abstraction, then again, when a new instance springs up to either replace a sick one or to scale us out because we've got mm-hmm. a big spike in demand, well, the, the database is a separate entity. It's over here. And you just talk to it through this mechanism and it will store for you and it will retrieve for you and whatever. You right. don't have to worry about it. You know, if we try to get you know, the, the job of tying those things back together, well, that kind of harms what we're trying to do here with being able to scale things up, scale things down, you know, fix yeah. things, health heal, all that kind of fun stuff. You know, so it, it's, it's just that abstraction becomes required if we're really going to get these other benefits. You know, if you're going to hard code that in, well, now that doesn't work out so great for us. So, so then when you were, you've evaluated things in the past, I mean, like what, what do you do with a database? Cause like, I don't think a database is a 12 factor. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's not. And, and, you know, I mean, I admit that one of the hardest things we face, especially if we start talking about microservices is what we do with the data. Uh-huh. You know, it's especially, you know, our traditional application was designed with the one data store and it had everything and the monolith right wrote all over it and read all over it. And as you start pulling things apart in a perfect world, they all have their own database so that we don't step on each other. And when I need to make schema changes, I can make schema changes and I don't got to worry about anybody else. Uh-huh. And then you start running into all sorts of other interesting issues like, well, wait, this microservice actually kind of needs something out of there. So how do we, you know, how do I make that communication channel happen? And well, wait, maybe that isn't the best way to pull these things apart. So it data, I, I still think is one of those areas we, we haven't maybe focused enough effort and attention into. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. weird that it doesn't get talked about more. Right. Especially because again, we have always had it and we will always have it. I mean, that that's kind of a requirement here in many yeah. systems is, well, where's the database? I mean, I almost feel like at this point and maybe several points in the future, the answer is just sort of like, I don't know, it's that mysterious cylinder over there yeah. that runs, right? Yeah. And and like the best that we're going to do with our data is like there's these, there's still these uh, these priests and monks that run it. Right. And like we're going to get them to give us like a more friendly interface. Right. Right. Like like we're going to be able to send stuff in, in JSON and they can send stuff in JSON back to us. And like that's all the effort I want to spend on that yeah. cylinder. Like, yeah. like there's not... I never, I very rarely come across like, I mean, there's like all the, uh, the children of no SQL stuff out there, right? Like, like I was noticing I in Mongo's web scale in, in, in our, in our Paris office here, there's a data stacks office, yeah. right? So there's the Cassandra people and you got the Kafka people and, but, and I know very little about this, so I'll, I'll babble on and embarrass myself, but it seems like those, the, the problems with getting those things up and running are just the traditional problems of like, this is a big complicated data service. And so you need to have good infrastructure and mm-hmm. good system administration. And like, at the end of the day, it's complicated, right? Like yeah. it's, it's not this like simpler way of doing application development that comes and goes. And, and 
I don't know. It's almost like the weird secret of cloud native development is like, yeah, you're still going to need those annoying DBAs <laughs> or, or, yeah. or, cl- or maybe cluster DBAs or, or whatever. Your data handling is always going to be, it's, it's either going to be expensive and painful because it's just like some database, right? Or it's going to be weird and exotic. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, part of the challenge I think we face in that database space is we have so much more choice today. Mm, you know, that's for, true. For good chunk of our development experience, it's like, well, it's going to be a relational database. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, now, we have different flavors, but it was going to be a relational database. And then now we've kind of got this model where, well, it could be a relational database. That still might be the right choice in a lot of cases, by the way. But I've got this whole fleet of other choices that all are under this umbrella, NoSQL, or whatever we want to call it these days. Yeah, I don't think anyone says that anymore. Probably not. It's probably too whatever. old. Now. I mean, I'm just, I'm just an old architect guy, so what do I know? But yeah. But they all have different characteristics. Yeah, and What's exactly. fascinating is you see people will just glom onto one. And they're like, oh, I love this one. Well, why? Well, because. And it's like, well, is, is that the right way to solve this problem? Yeah. You know, I mean, like you look at, at like Neo4j, you know, graphing database. There are certain problem domains that that is the perfect solution for. There are others where it's not the right solution. You know, I, I still think like we have a responsibility to know like when do I pick up which tool? You know, instead of just getting locked in on, well, I like this one because, you know, I like the name or I used it on a project and it seemed like it was fine. But does that, does that really give you the characteristics you need for this problem that you're trying to solve? Yeah, yeah. You know, so that's that's still to me the big mix, and and again the fact we have so many more choices than we did before yeah. makes it in some ways more difficult because you're like I can't just reach for one from column yeah, A. Yeah. I have to figure out which one solves this particular problem. Yeah, I mean it seems like a really weird space because like, or at least to me because it doesn't seem like like let's call it data management. Is it data or data? I watch too much Star Trek. It depends on where you come from, I think. Right? Yeah, there you go. So it's so like route versus route. Your your state management, right? There you go. State like state management is this problem we've constantly been trying to solve and reinvent, and we never really do. And in contrast, like when it comes to software development, like that's always going through wacky changes, right? right. Like like we used to have whatever it is C was, and then and then we had this crazy thing of Java, right. of like what that is, and then like all the Ruby people were like static typing, oh my, and and like you know all, and then and then That's the, so quaint, and then the kind of like idea of of like whatever weird magic Spring does with injection and introspection, yep. all that kind of came along, and nowadays nowadays for some reason like all these like more statically typed stateful things are like. Concurrency is a big deal. So, like, there's always a lot of going back and forth mm-hmm. in what's important in programming languages. Rediscovering something. Yeah, yeah. The first but time. but in, in the state world, like, every now and then there's these little brush-ups of no SQL stuff that come up. But right. then eventually it goes back to what we're talking about. Is like, oh, man, this is a really hard problem. Like, yeah. it doesn't seem like people have ever cracked the difficulty of running that long term, right? But, Operating it seems like the very difficult thing. And I think that's why we haven't seen that kind of churn there. Because let's be honest, like you lose the data, we got a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, if, if, if you had a database where, you know, like one out of 10 writes didn't work, that, that'd be an issue, you know? I mean, if you, because I mean, so many of our companies now, they are just billions and billions of lines and databases. And if those go away, it's like, what do we have? I don't know. That, that's what it is. That's our customer data. That's right. Our you just have data. a stateless app. <laughs> yeah, then we got a stateless it, business. You know what? It scales really well and it's <laughs> yeah. super fast. That's right. We just we just pipe it to Dev Null. It's fine. Yeah. And so I think that's part of it. Is is there? You know, I, I mean, I, I'm not trying to diminish what we do as, as app developers by any stretch, but there's a responsibility there. Like, no, we can't lose data. 
you know, this, this has to be backed up. Yeah, this, yeah. This, is, this is an asset. You know, we, we can put a monetary value on this and we need to protect that. And, and so we can't be as cavalier maybe with that as we can be in, in maybe our process or in some of the other things that we do where we can just try these experiments and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, as I keep no CIO wants to say, yes, please experiment with my data. That would be yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. will get me a promotion. Yeah. No, like I was joking. They, the CIOs don't want a stateless business. No, right? like that's, that's not what they're interested in. That doesn't work well in the, the P and L sheet, does it? No, no. And, and, and so, I mean, I know I'm repeating this, that I don't know this domain, but it does seem like that would be one of the more attract, or I should say the next attractive thing for like cloud services. Right. And, and it's hard to, I guess at a certain scale for private cloud, it would make sense because you could centralize the data management and mm -hmm. things like that. But definitely in a public cloud instance, and this is not so much true, but it does seem like potentially an evolution of, of easing the operations of a database in the sense of like, as a developer, I don't have to operate the database. Like I have to work within the constraints it gives me, but I don't actually have to like keep it up and running and make sure that the, I don't even know what people use, fiber channel, whatever. I don't have to know what the storage array is doing right, and like, right. and what the interconnects are. Like someone else handles all of that for me. Could be squirrels putting stuff in a tree, whatever. Right, okay. right. As long and, as it works. And, and so there, there is like, it does seem like if you, if you make it easier, kind of ironically to, to, to manage and bring databases up and down and all of that, then maybe there is some hope in making data's, data or state, I should keep saying, easier. But I don't know. It's just such a weird, it's an annoying problem. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there doesn't, I, again, I don't know of like many people who like are fixing that problem other than sort of window dressing sure. of like, let's genericize a big honking database somewhere. And then you can just kind of generically stuff stuff in there. And I mean, the only, the only thing that comes to mind is I don't know like Google infrastructure very well, but I think, I think they have like, you know, two or three systems that like, is like, this is the database and you have to use this and we will run it for you. Right. And like, if you don't like the way it operates, too that's, bad. That's terrible for you. Which which so is sad. which is which is tragic because that's why we didn't like databases in the first place. Sure, sure. <laughs> that's that's why no one really likes DBAs because that's that's their attitude. Well, is, plus DBAs, is like your query is nice, but you cannot execute it. DBAs also have a thing against like vowels, right? I mean, you ever seen like you hand them like a data model and then like strip everything out. Yeah, so but they only have thirty two characters. That's right. There's all these limits of things that they have to deal with. So yeah, I mean, it, it's a hard problem. There's no getting around it. Yeah, you know? yeah. and I mean. For better or worse, I've largely stayed away from the data side of the house. I mean, I've been more of a front-end guy, you know, kind of like once the data gets to the server, it's like, well, somebody else's problem now, you know, and yeah. so I haven't had that kind of exposure there, you know, but it, it it's it's an interesting part of this, and it's something that I think we ignore to a certain extent at our own peril, you know, that, that it's, it is important that we think about how do we store this and where do we store it and, and what is the right choice for yeah. this particular problem. Well, we'll have to get our buddy Josh Long to do a new demo. There you go. That involves state. Yes. Yes, we will. We'll, we'll see if we can make him do that. Well, we'll, uh, well, when he's doing does he still do the reservation demo? Yes. Uh, when, whenever he's doing that, I'll have to go at midway and pull the plug on his computer. And does, be like, does now it still work? <laughs> is that stored in a durable uh, data location of some sort or another? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, that's not the point of that demo. No. But, but yeah. No, and, and, and in the defense of stuff we were talking about, I mean, I think I think that the evolution of how how much easier and reliably it is to write applications, even though they're stateless, like that is, in, in, in my little career, it is remarkable that it's just, it doesn't take as long right. just to like write a reservation system. Agreed. Like it's, re it's, 
And even more importantly, I think the thing that, that gets missed out a lot is it's one thing to be easier to write, which it certainly is. And nowadays it's also easier to like run successfully yeah. <laughs> to yeah. like, to like not screw up when you actually want to run it. Like yeah. it's, it's easier to write it in a way that's uh, I don't know, DevOps friendly or whatever. Well, and, and to your point, this stuff is getting easier. And, and I think that's a good thing. And it's allowing us to solve problems faster and be more responsive and, and be better partners to, to the, the business side of the house. You know, and, and it, it is interesting. I was playing around with some boot stuff over the last summer and I was to me being a longtime Java guy, I did feel like it was cheating. Because I had this little simple app I put together, and I had more lines of JavaScript for my front end than I had Java for my back end. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I remember when this was so much harder. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I'm old enough that you know, Java, the Java in a nutshell book actually was thin. You know, it wasn't like this 900 page tome. And you know, but I, in the grand scheme of things, that's a huge win because I'm not dealing with some of that low level stuff that I had to do 20 years ago. Yeah. And that, that's, that's just, that's better for all of us, you know, because I don't want to deal with that low level stuff. Now, what's fascinating to me is from the first time we basically showed a business person, like you could do that. And we're like, yeah, sure. We can do that with a computer. Like the demand for what they want from us just keeps outstripping our ability to supply it. And mm. we keep coming up with these better and faster ways of doing things. And the business just keeps asking for more. Yeah. yeah. You know, okay. Can you, can you turn that to 11 now? And, and we just keep reacting to that. And, you know, and I don't know. I don't think we're ever going to find that place where we're like kind of sitting back. Yeah. And, no, that's, that's a good, that's a good, like uh, vaguely related last topic before we wrap up is like, I, I'm sure you've experienced this, but it's, it's, it's always, uh, Notable, I think, is the 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 uncharged word you would use. That when you come over uh, to Europe, and here we are in, in Paris, which I believe is located in France. I think so. Yes, what, that's my one understanding. Of, one of the things people tell you is basically like, "Well, we can't actually get rid of anyone who works for us." So anytime you're pitching lower headcount, that's not going to be effective, right? Right, and it's almost like a challenge they throw out of just like you know the punchline to lots of your uh, business value jokes always ends up fire people. Right. And in, in order to achieve value. But, you know, I mean, I mean, the uh, this is like it always it always depends on your audience and how nice sure. you want to be. But like just as you were illustrating, right, like the goal is not so much to get rid of people. It's to like get each individual to do more work in the same or, amount of time or it's, higher value. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That's what I mean. It is like, well, I mean, if you can speed them up and they and then I mean, I guess I'm overthinking it. Like if 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 you if it if you can do five operations in an hour then that's expensive versus if you could do 5,000 of those operations in an hour. So speeding up things can bring down the value. But True. to your point, they can do more important things. Right. And I never like that phrasing because it sounds like, well, when does that ever happen? But it's more that you can do more things. You, right. The business can expect more from you. And so, you know, you don't have to fire these people. No. Right? Well, I mean, to your point, I, I remember building an app God, 20 years ago now where, I mean, we were basically building the web pages with a bunch of print lines. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's what we had to do. I mean, that, that's... Well, that's sort of what it boils down to at the core, right? Is your well, hand, that's true. Well, I mean, if you're really getting specific, it's a bunch of zeros and ones. The, so web, stre- the, the web server has this stream, and then it just I mean, it, it gives it to it something, right. and then you got to write your junk into it, yep. and then it streams it back. You know, and, and so when I consider the amount of effort it took to put a web front end onto a relational database... Yeah, yeah. Take some data from someone and put it over here for storage. It was immense. I mean, it, it took weeks to do things that right now you and I could spin it up in five minutes. To me, that's a huge win because I'm not dealing with all these low level, painful things that I had to do. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, I mean, I, I remember at one point early on in my career, I, I wrote a bunch of really weird JavaScripty stuff to allow you to like edit stuff directly on the page and add rows on the page. And, and I mean, it was an immense had the old uh, XML HTTP request. Oh yeah. XH. This was before XHR. Oh, this is yeah. how old I am. Right. And, and so the amount of JavaScript it took to do that was crazy. And it was because I wasn't very good at JavaScript at the time. Probably yeah, not yeah. anymore. I, I, it was not the best. Yeah. Code Netscape had something for that a long time oh, ago. Man, right. You know, I got lots of NANDs and all sorts of other crazy stuff as I, I slapped this thing together with bubble gum and, and bailing twine. Well, now you fast forward to today, and well, I don't have to worry about that. I can just use React. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. I can use Angular. You yeah. know, and a whole class of problems are solved for me. I just grab this thing, and I'm working with a higher level of abstraction. Yeah, and you um, don't need a, a Net, Netscape server to run JavaScript on no, the server side. No. You can run it where, on the server side willy-nilly. I don't have to worry about issues where it worked in, in Netscape and it didn't work in IE. Yeah, yeah you remember when they, that came out, like Netscape was running JavaScript on the server side? I remember that must have been in the late 90s, and I remember I spent a couple of days reading whatever giant document they had. Sure. And one, I, I was very young, so it was very confusing. But two, I remember thinking, like, why would you ever want to do this? <laughs> like, and then fast forward today, and what, what's one of our most popular development environments? Exactly. It's JavaScript on the server. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole generation of us, us with graying beards that are like, why would you ever want to do this? <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, if, if, if in a very non-creepy way, if people wanted to follow you around in the Internet. Oh, sure. Where, where, sure. where, where would they go to? Well, you could find me on Twitter at NTShuta, N-T-S-C-H-U-T-T-A. Uh-huh. You can also find my website. Yeah, and, and you you have what, what are like what are, what are like your top two three presentations that are recorded? Oh, geez, out there? That's interesting. Uh, I think there's a copy of Sifting Technologies out there somewhere. Sifting Technologies. Yep. Okay. So I've spent a lot of my career evaluating different things. You know, sifting. You, yep. Exactly. <laughs> sifting. Which uh-huh. which one of these? You know, this, it actually grew out of a talk I did a couple of years ago comparing Angular to React. Mm. And after like the third or fourth time I did the talk, I realized that the more interesting part of this was not the specific comparison between Angular and React. But more the how do you compare and Angular and React? Yeah, you know because it was very reminiscent of work I've done, you know, throughout my career to compare yeah, yeah. X and Y and or X Y and Z and and so that that's what kind of morphed into that. I've been doing this cloud native one on one a bunch, you know, which yeah. I think is kind of interesting. You know, and that just kind of gets into all the nuance of that, the twelve factors and all that fun stuff. Yeah, there's a good there's, seen a there's, there's a good uh, there's a good what would you say depending on how you give it like a, a three to five minute discussion of each factor. Yeah, and, yeah, and the motivations and the consequences and sort of sort of what they mean. Yeah, and we talk about microservices and we talk about serverless. And oh all yeah, that yeah, fun yeah. Stuff. that's in there too. You got to have some buzzwords in there, right? Yeah, you know, it's the nature of the beast. So. Yeah, someone sent me an email that they wanted me to come give a talk on like trends, which is. Always a fraught topic. <laughs> it's 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 hard to do that in a useful way. But that, sure. I, I think, I mean, and, and that comes to mind because I think those three things, or there's four things you talk about in that talk, which is like cloud. Yeah, and what so is it? There's a trend, and then there's uh, 12-factor apps, which is a trend, and then you have microservices, microservices. and then you got like, are we allowed to say serverless? Or I think so. Well, you can call it FAS if that makes you feel better. FAS, okay, yeah. okay. Is, is that what that guy was saying today? I thought he was saying yes, but maybe, maybe. it was fast. I don't know. Okay. See, I, I like architect as a service, except I don't like how the acronym yeah, is pronounced. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the unfortunate yeah. part there. Yeah, that, that's a good. That's a good. A good joke. I used to ask. Uh, I used to joke about the three cloud asses, right? Like that's it's an unfortunate thing that you have there. I, I think anything now can can end in as a service. That's right. You know, we can probably get pizza as a service. So, so, the, so, uh, do you have a third presentation? You'd recommend? Oh, I got a bunch of different ones. Uh, let's see, what's an uh, production hardened services is another one. Production really hardened, like. yeah. So that's 
one of the things we don't always pay attention to, and we have this crazy cloud environment with lots of microservices, you know, we've got all these spinning plates and we confer an awful lot of trust on that service when we deploy it because mm-hmm. it's going to interact with a whole bunch of other services and potentially in non-deterministic ways. And how do we make sure that we didn't just put something in our environment that's going to bring the whole thing down? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's what kind of stuff do we need to be thinking about as we enter this era of not one app that we can step through in a debugger, but 5, 10, 15, 100 services that are all interacting in unique, interesting ways that mm. we may or may not understand. Yeah. And so it gets into a lot of the things that we need to try to do this in a, in a way that will maintain sanity. I, I mean, clearly, unlike those monitoring and log dummies, you're going to need some advanced analytics. You're going to you're gonna need some monitoring and some logging and some alerting and a whole bunch of other stuff. But I mean, yeah. it really tries to drive into how do we have kind of this healthy microservices uh-huh. biome. You need, you need some adaptive baselining and uh, application tracing. Word. That's, that's what's going to save us. Well, there you go. Uh, as always, this has been Pivotal Conversations. If you want to get the most recent episodes or peruse our back catalog, because you have few things better to do, uh, you go to soundcloud.com slash Pivotal Conversations. And increasingly not on Thursday, but it's traditionally on Thursday, we, we post the uh, full show notes for this. I'll see if I can round up some of the, the talks that uh, Nate mentioned here. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'll find some old 2002 literature on how, oh, I know, IBM's autonomic computing was like the height of the uh, uh, advanced analytics. Stuff. That's a, it's a really good paper, if you don't remember that, from it's either 99 or 2000. And uh, you could just kind of like shift it into the way we talk about things now. And it's a little, a little delightful. It's kind of like the flying car of cloud. Sure. Um, I don't know if that's a good analogy. Anyways, uh, yeah, show notes. <laughs> you can find those there. And and with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>